Welcome to OnSpec Podcast, where you can hear stories that connect you closer to the globe. I'm your guest host, Nadine Gori. This season is about borders and the walls we build, both real and imaginary. And today I'm going to share my personal story about the walls behind motherhood, borders that define us as women, and how a Ukrainian, a New Zealander, and a Brit, that's me, united to make a baby. The day I met the person who changed my life is indelibly seared into my memory. It was a sunny and snowy December day in Kiev, Ukraine, 2018. She was very tall and had the most piercing blue eyes I have ever seen. They sparkled with warmth and kindness. She wrapped me into a bear hug so fierce that it lifted me off my feet and said words that made me cry then. You've made a good decision. It is going to be okay. She said it in such a reassuring, calm voice, I instantly believed her. This was my introduction to Victoria, the woman who would carry my unborn child for me. Fast forward three years and three months later, and I could never have imagined that I would be helping her and her family flee for their lives. And that I would be repeating those same words back to her over her painful and difficult decision to take her children and leave their homeland as Russian shells rain down around them. You've made a good decision. It's going to be okay. My husband Sam and I are one of some estimated 2,000 foreign couples each year who, until the war, travelled to Ukraine to have a child through commercial surrogacy. Some 50 fertility clinics in Ukraine offer treatments like IVF, but also surrogacy. Commercial surrogacy, whereby a woman is paid a fee to carry a child for somebody else, is legal in Ukraine, until the latest war began. In most European countries, surrogacy is either illegal or is a legal grey area. Here in the UK, where I live, surrogacy is permitted, but it must be a voluntary arrangement. There is no legal protection for either party, and it is against the law to pay somebody anything other than reasonable expenses. And whoever gives birth, and her husband, are deemed the legal parents, regardless of genetics. But under Ukrainian surrogacy laws, the intended parents, as couples seeking children are known, are considered the legal parents. And it is their names who go onto the birth certificate. This is what makes it so attractive to couples seeking to have a child this way. But there are strict rules. Intended parents must be married, heterosexual, and must prove at least three attempts of failed IVF in order to access the Ukrainian programme. At least one of the intended parents must be biologically related to the child. And in the case where one parent is infertile, a sperm or egg donor can be used. A surrogate is not permitted to use her own eggs. I'm explaining all of this to you so that you get a sense of the complexity of what we had to go through. After a decade of failed infertility treatment, miscarriage, heartbreak and loss, Sam and I had all but given up on having our own child. We had frozen embryos in storage, 
but I knew my broken body could not cope with another failed attempt at IVF. I had built up a wall around my heart. I lost myself in work, fussed over our three rescue dogs as if they were babies, and Sam and I cried long into the night, reminding ourselves we still had each other. I tried not to wince when people asked me if I had children, and I had long ago learned to take a deep breath at the intrusive questions people asked the infertile. Which one of you can't have kids? Have you thought of adoption? Or worse of all, the well-meaning but extremely frustrating. My friend of a friend had 12 rounds of IVF, but then she got pregnant. I don't know if these apocryphal tales of people getting pregnant after so many rounds of IVF are even true, and I don't care. When your body is blue and bruised from six weeks of hormone injections into your butt and your stomach, when you've taken yet another failed pregnancy test, when you've miscarried, when you have no embryos left, believe me, the last thing you need to hear is how it worked for someone else. I think the worst comment I ever got after one failed round was when a friend asserted, it's not really a baby though, is it? Just an embryo. Embryos are usually five days old when implanted and it takes two to three weeks to find out if they have taken or not. So by then, a round of failed IVF is in fact akin to an early miscarriage. I don't know why people feel the need to say things like that. I guess infertility, like chronic illness, is something that makes us feel uncomfortable, scared, unsure what to say. So people grasp for comments within their own comfort zone. And we all make judgments about things. I, like many people, had strongly negative feelings about surrogacy. I had read negative newspaper reports about commercial surrogacy. In my head, it was a corrupt and cruel system that enslaved poor women, usually in developing countries, into handing over babies to privileged, wealthy Western couples. I would never do that, I said vehemently. But I also knew I couldn't risk voluntary surrogacy either, the idea of going through a pregnancy for nine months, knowing that a surrogate could change her mind at any point and not hand over my child, was too scary a prospect to consider. A chance meeting on a beach one day changed the course of my life. I met a same-sex couple with two beautiful kids. They explained their children had been born via surrogacy in the US, one of the few countries where surrogacy is open to non-heterosexual couples. It doesn't have to be unethical, they said. Do some more research. So I did. A few weeks later, we were on our way to Kiev. We had signed up to a small surrogacy agency who would manage the process for us. They emailed us a shortlist of three potential surrogates. In their bios, each woman explained her reasons for wanting to do it. One was a single mum who had done it before already. Twice is the legal limit in Ukraine. She had used the money to set up her own catering business. Another had an aunt who was infertile and was moved to help others. The cost to us was €45,000. The surrogate would receive 20000 of that. The rest went on agency fees and medical costs. It was a lot of money. We had to remortgage our house. But when you consider a round of IVF costs anywhere between six to 10,000 euros, it puts it into context. Fertility treatment is expensive. In America, surrogacy can cost an eye-watering 100,000 US dollars. The agency contract covered everything. A surrogate had to promise not to do anything that might harm an unborn child, such as take drugs or drink alcohol, even coffee. 
But the list of rules for us was extensive too. All contact had to be through the agency. And one thing stands out still. It stated that at the birth, the intended mother could be present, if the surrogate allowed, but not the father. To me, that made perfect sense. Why would she want a strange man there? But it struck me that under voluntary arrangements, a couple and their surrogate might not discuss birth plans until late into a pregnancy. What if there were disagreements about this? It was easy to see how these voluntary arrangements can break down. Personally, I liked the fact that every detail had been thought about by someone else. As I sat on the plane, I had second thoughts. I cried. I felt like a failure. I wanted my own body to carry my child, not a stranger. My husband and I are both journalists. Before we went into that first meeting with Victoria, we were on alert for any red flags. Had she been coerced into this? Did she make eye contact? Did she have bruises on her arms? We were ready to walk out the door at the first sign. Instead, I was wrapped into that huge bear hug and literally swept up in love by this incredible woman that today I am proud to call my friend. She told us how as a child in her village, there was an old lady who had no children or partner, just lots of dogs. Victoria recalls being around eight years old and saying to her mother, when I grow up, I'm going to have a baby for that lady. I showed her photographs of my three dogs, my fur babies. We laughed and cried. We signed the contract. We laughed and we cried some more. Sam and I flew home. And a few weeks later, we got the news that Victoria was pregnant with our biological embryo. I should have been delighted. Instead, I sobbed. I sobbed with grief that it wasn't me. I was jealous and angry. But of course, I never shared those feelings with her. We communicated via the agency translator on a group WhatsApp chat. We got to know each other that way. She shared pictures of her two gorgeous daughters. She generously shared parenting tips. In turn, we showed her photographs of our home and all the places we would take the baby. We wanted her to feel reassured that the child she was holding tight for us in her womb would be loved and cherished. But my feelings of grief would not go away. That was made worse by some unkind comments when we tentatively began to tell people the news. A close friend told us he was appalled by our decision. There are children who need homes, he said. Why have you bought a designer baby? The irony of this man, with a slew of failed relationships and children of his own he hardly saw, lecturing me, was not lost on me. But it stung. In fact, Sam and I had been approved to adopt, but we had backed out for reasons I don't want to share here. Suffice to say, adoption is not always the simplistic process people think it to be. The point is, any question that people ask, have you thought of, why don't you, have long been answered by infertile couples themselves. The tears, the conversations deep into the small hours. There was not a stone we had left unturned, no option unexplored. My second attempt at sharing our happy news, this time with a neighbour, went just as badly. Her mouth curled in distaste. Oh, I cannot approve of that, I am afraid. That put me back in my box. I didn't dare tell anyone else. Our secret pregnancy felt very lonely. My grief was worse than ever. At Victoria's three-month pregnancy milestone, my husband gently but firmly made me see sense. 
We are going to have a baby. You need to be happy about that. There are three of us in this pregnancy. It is what it is, and you need to embrace it for what it is. He was right. So I did. And it became lovely. We learned we were having a boy. Victoria and I grew closer. She nicknamed the baby Your Little Cossack because he kicked her so much. We were sent regular updates and we flew out to Kiev for the important scans. At the final, eight-month scan, I went alone. I held Victoria's hand in the clinic and I saw my son's face in 3D for the first time. He turned to look right at the camera and I gasped. Hello, I said. I've been waiting for you. I cried. Victoria cried too. Everyone in the room, an all-female medical team, cried. I looked around that room and I felt a groundswell of pride. This was not my choice, but how proud I was to be in that room at that moment with those women. After the scan, Victoria and I stood in the corridor and we cried and we hugged some more. An extraordinary woman called Dr Galina, one of Ukraine's IVF pioneers, came over and took both of our hands. She clucked at us like a mother hen. Here we were, her miracle creations. And there he was on the screen, my miracle boy. We went out for lunch and discussed birth plans. You will be here holding my hand, won't you? asked Victoria. Of course, I assured her. Both of us were genuinely excited about the birth now. It felt deeply, deeply spiritual. The ultimate gift from one woman to another. Yes, we had paid her, but why on earth shouldn't someone be paid for surrogacy? Why is women's work seen as any less than what it is? Work. Can you imagine if men could carry a child for others? Would they be expected to do it for free? It's a good question, and I don't believe they would. Society has long had issues with women's bodies, whether that is menstruation, pregnancy, the way we look, what we do with our bodies, the clothes we wear. Women's bodies are somehow public possessions to be judged, frowned upon, told what is and isn't appropriate. Just as my infertile body had been judged by society, so too was Victoria's fertile body and that of other commercial surrogates. The idea of a woman commercialising her own body, well, it's the ultimate taboo. How could a woman do this for money? The assumption was she must be either coerced or financially so desperate that she had no option but to give away her child. The idea that she could be acting of her own free agency, born from a desire both to earn good money and to help others have their own child, had not seemed to occur to any of the, mostly male, journalists writing these pieces. That's not to say there are not abuses within commercial surrogacy, unscrupulous agencies, or surrogates who do regret their decision. Those are the stories that grab the headlines. The quietly happy success stories do not. For me, and I hope Victoria, it had become a nuanced, powerful, feminine, sacred process. I was no longer shamed by our joint pregnancy. I was proud. I had literally just got home and unpacked after the scan, preparing to fly back out to Kiev a month later, when I got a panicked message from Victoria to say she needed an emergency caesarean. Gilbert's head had moved, and the doctors were worried he would get stuck. When, I asked her. Tomorrow, 6am, was the reply. 
We scrambled. Luckily, there was an overnight flight. We landed at 5am and made a frantic dash to the hospital. I begged to see Victoria, but was told she was already in surgery. Our son Gilbert was born at 6.08am. Minutes later, he was in my arms. Sam and I lay down on the bed with him in bliss. Victoria recovered in a separate ward. This is another part of surrogacy that society cannot get its head around. I was bombarded with nosy questions about this, such as a friend who asked, How long did the baby stay with mum before you took him? I'm his mum, I replied. No, I mean his mum mum. That was nice. Others, women of course, demanded that I allow my surrogate to breastfeed for the first few weeks. I calmly explained that wasn't my decision to take. In Ukraine, surrogates take medication so they don't develop breast milk. Because why would a surrogate want to go home with breasts leaking full of milk for a child that is not theirs? It might sound brutal, but he was my baby from the moment he was born. And it was me he needed to bond with. It was my chest he needed to lay on. My scent he needed to inhale. That's not to say I was not deeply conscious of how hard this part would be for Victoria. She sent a message of congratulations and said she wasn't ready to talk for a couple of days, but that she knew I understood why. Of course I did. A few days later, she came to visit us. I admit this was my turn to feel terrified and scared. What if Gilbert cried and clung to her, his real mother? Friends were scared for me. Don't let her hold him. What if she runs away with him? That was a ridiculous notion. In the event, Gilbert slept through the whole thing. Victoria and I hugged and cried and laughed, our usual, and Sam and I crept out into the corridor for ten minutes, giving Victoria time alone with Gilbert to say whatever she needed to say. We already knew we would be staying in contact. We had discussed that during the pregnancy. Some surrogates prefer a clean break, and some intended parents don't want to have contact with a surrogate after a birth. I can understand why people might be reluctant, but I took my lead from a piece of beautiful advice given to me by another family who had been through surrogacy. This mother had a great friendship with her former surrogate and said simply, a child cannot have too many people in the world who love it. And that's the point. Gilbert was born through this miracle of kindness and he deserves a relationship with every player in the story. Gilbert turned two this February and during that time I've come to think of Victoria as one of his aunties. She sees his photos on my social media just like any other friend and it meant the world to me when she sent me a photographic bouquet of flowers on Mother's Day. I honestly don't care what other people think of our story, if it offends them, if they think I took advantage of her, if they are shocked by it. As my husband rightly pointed out, there are three of us in this story and we all know why we are there. That's what matters. But our story and our bond does not end there. One month ago, Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Almost overnight, a brutal occupation was underway, with the deliberate and sustained targeting of civilians. Entire cities like Mariupol have been virtually erased. Over two million Ukrainians have fled as refugees. Most of them are women and children, because in our society, women are expected to breed and men to fight and to bleed. The Ukrainian government has conscripted all males between 18 to 60 years of age to fight.
they are not allowed to leave the country. We've all watched these anguished, heartbreaking scenes of fathers kissing their wives and children goodbye, unable to go with them. Beyond the politics of land borders and national boundaries, war highlights where we draw some of our most deeply entrenched boundaries around gender. Men are warriors and women are caregivers. In the first days of the invasion, Victoria and I spoke often. She was determined not to leave. Her husband, Yuri, was sent to the front line in Mariupol. Touchingly, although they had two kids together and had been together for 20 years, they'd never married. The day before he left, they wed. Not quite the party I had dreamed of, she quipped. Now I am busy packing his suitcase up for war. She kept herself busy, cooking and delivering food for her elderly neighbours. I can't leave, she told me. I don't want to be a refugee. The next day, my phone beeped. A new message from Victoria. It read, If things turn really bad, Nadine, if I am killed, will you come and collect my kids? My heart stopped. It was, in a strange way, the ultimate compliment. This woman who gave my son life when I could not was asking me to protect her own children amid the darkness of conflict. In a fleeting phone call from Mariupol, in a break from near-constant battle, Yuri spoke to her. He persuaded her not to wait for the worst, but to take their daughters and to go. I knew her heart was breaking, so what else could I say but, you've made a good decision, it will be okay. We both laughed, weakly. So now it was my turn to repay the favour and help to bring them to safety. Extraordinary civilian evacuation groups have been assisting refugee convoys out of Ukraine. Mobilising on WhatsApp, Signal and Facebook, these volunteer groups collate names, organise buses and collection points. Victoria, her two daughters, her sister-in-law, her niece and Tyson, the family dog, managed to take a bus from their home to the Polish border. At 1am, in temperatures of minus 2 degrees, they were picked up by a man named Davin, a total stranger I found on social media through one of these assistance groups. This incredible man is driving his car to the Polish border every day, delivering newly crossed refugees to any town in Poland. He refused any payment. From Poland, I'd intended to fly them to Ireland. A volunteer network I knew there had offered to find a host family. Ireland is offering generous packages of support for Ukrainian refugees, with a three-year EU temporary protection visa, which gives refugees the right to work. Two days of frantic phone calls to airlines later... I was unable to find any airline willing to take Tyson, the dog. He's a French bulldog, and most airlines will not fly flat-nosed dogs because of the risk of breathing difficulties mid-flight. Many Ukrainians have fled with their beloved pets. For traumatised children, a cherished dog, cat or hamster is the only comfort and link to home they have left. It was non-negotiable that Tyson had to come too. The Irish government had waived all entry requirements for Ukrainian pets. The only problem was getting him there. In the end, Victorian family had to take a three-day odyssey by train across Europe, from Poland to Germany to France, and then onward by ferry to Dublin. I can't imagine how difficult this was for Victoria, who only speaks Ukrainian and Russian, to navigate this cross-European journey. But we worked it out through a combination of online translation apps and an English-speaking Ukrainian friend of mine who helped to translate the most complicated timetables. But Victoria coped with her usual self-effacing humour. 
And at every point along that journey, someone, be that a man who helped with their luggage, or the cafe in Berlin Station who gave them hot tea, they witnessed small acts of kindness. Two days ago, two women, three kids and the dog sailed into Dublin port. They were greeted by Teresa, their Irish host mother. Teresa is a widow who lives on a small farm 20 minutes outside of Dublin. Her husband died in a tragic accident a few years ago. She was rattling around alone in her big farmhouse and was moved to host a refugee family, signing up with the Irish Red Cross to do so. Within a day of agreeing to host Victoria and family, Teresa had registered the children at the local school, bought everyone bicycles and organised jobs for the two women at a nearby organic farm if they wanted it. She thoughtfully laid out teddies on the children's bed and draped her banister railings in the Ukrainian flag by way of solidarity. The Irish process for arriving Ukrainian refugees is one of can-do efficiency. On arrival at Dublin, they were given clothes, toiletries and processed by a government official. By contrast, the UK scheme, in which citizens can sponsor refugees to live in their home, has been mired in delays and bureaucracy. The gendered nature of the fleeing Ukrainian refugees is unprecedented. These lone women and children are among the most vulnerable of the world's 26 million refugees. And then, of course, still in Ukraine, there are the surrogacy babies like ours. It's thought that there could be as many as 800 Ukrainian surrogates currently pregnant with children to foreigners. Since the war began, there have been desperate stories of intended parents risking their lives to get into Ukraine to pick up their babies, or of surrogates who now have the added burden of keeping their own kids safe, but also the one they are carrying for someone else. And I know the relief of safety for Victoria and her family is tempered by those loved ones left behind. There are two women who have left their husbands fighting on a brutal front line. They also left Victoria's own mother, who decided at the last minute that she wouldn't go. She refused to leave her home, even if that meant dying in it. My heart sang when Victoria messaged me earlier to say that they were out shopping for school uniforms and that the children would start school on Monday and that she was cooking traditional Ukrainian borscht for Teresa. I allowed myself a little cry yesterday. Relief and joy that this latest chapter of Gilbert's incredible birth story had a safe, if bittersweet, outcome, and excitement at being able to visit and see Victoria soon. In the mind-bending world of chaos theory, there's a concept known as the butterfly effect. The flapping of the wings of a butterfly can be felt on the other side of the world. It's a theory that means small actions can generate large changes, positive or not. I think kindness works like that. It reverberates, vibrates and flies through time and space. The kindness of a woman who brought a frozen embryo to life for a childless couple. The miracle of life and birth. And then, amidst death and horror and destruction, the debt of gratitude that was paid back. In part, because it is a debt that can never be fully repaid. By my helping Victoria and her family to flee. And everyone who helped them on the journey. And then Teresa, our new friend the Irish matriarch who opened her home and heart to someone simply because she could. Kindness creates little miracles out of our everyday existences. Imagine a world where we didn't put up barriers of judgment, of preconceived ideas, if perhaps we swallowed down an insensitive comment instead of saying it out loud, or where we all just tried that little bit harder to help someone else, any way that we can. Kindness moves mountains. It changes lives.
It can be our anchor in a world of chaos. My son is testament to that. <laughs> been listening to OnSpec.